0: Do you enjoy reading ghost stories alone at night? Have you ever binged an entire true crime series? Or do you ever unwind by watching horror films like The Exorcist, or reading the supernatural novels of Stephen King? This is the Dublin Gothic Podcast, a series investigating the intersection between art, psychology, folklore, architecture, natural history, and Ireland's urban Gothic writing. I am Dr. Katie Mischler, and my postdoctoral project is Mapping Gothic Dublin, Historical and Literary Hauntings from 1820 to 1900. This work is funded by an Irish Research Council Enterprise Partnership Grant in collaboration with Molly and the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics.
1: This episode of the Dublin Gothic podcast was recorded live at Molly's Old Physics Theatre on Thursday the 28th of October 2021. At this event, titled Daughters of Dracula, your host Dr Katie Mishler was joined by writers Sophie White, Sarah davis Goff, and dialling in from Cork, Deirne Graefe to discuss the enduring cultural legacy of vampires, ghosts and the undead.
0: I'm going to begin by introducing the panelist. Uh, Sophie White is a writer and podcaster from Dublin. Her first book, A Memoir Cookbook Work, Recipes for Nervous Breakdown, was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards. Her second book and first novel, The Best-Selling Filter This, was also shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards. Her third book, Unfiltered, was described by Marion Keyes as such fun, gas, clever stuff. Her fourth book and her second work of nonfiction is the best-selling essay collection, Corpsing: My Body and Other Horror Shows, published by Tramp Press in 2021. Sarah Davis-Gough is co-founder of Tramp Press, which publishes the Recovered Voices series, republishing a lost Irish classic once a year with a bent towards speculative fiction. In 2019, her own novel, Last Ones Left Alive, was published in the UK and Ireland by Tinder Press and in the US by Flatiron. Last Ones Left Alive was shortlisted, was nominated for the Edinburgh First Book Prize and the Not the Booker Prize, shortlisted for an Irish Book Award and the Kate O'Brien Award. And it won the Chrysalis Award. She lives in Dublin. And finally, Dierne Griffa, who is joining us remotely, is a poet and essayist. Her prose debut, A Ghost in the Throat, published by Tramp Press in 2020, was awarded the James Tate Black Prize for Biography and has been described as powerful by the New York Times and captivatingly original by The Guardian. Dearin is also the author of six critically acclaimed books of poetry, each a deepening exploration of birth, death, desire, and domesticity. Um, so, to begin tonight, I thought since this is called The Daughters of Dracula, we could just get Dracula out of the way from the <laughs> beginning. So I was curious to know if you think your work either engages directly with Bram Stoker's Dracula or with the novel's lasting cultural legacy of the vampire?
1: Like I, I, It's so hard to answer, I think, because... It, uh, Bram Stoker is such a huge figure kind of looming in Irish literary history, I'm not sure that we can ever really detangle ourselves from him entirely. Um, I would say, with reference to my own work, with reference to this um, zombie novel I wrote called Last One's Left Alive, that we have similar interest or interest in the power of women. Well, I'm kind of pro the power of women. He would be very much against it, and we should maybe talk more about that. But I think he and I would agree that all stories, if you follow them for long enough,
2: turn out to be horror stories. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I uh, engaged very directly with some of Bram's concerns. <laughs> uh, anyone who's read uh, Corpse My Body and other horror shows, it's like a collection of essays, so kind of creative nonfiction. And one of the essays in the book is called Craving. And it is about how I was pregnant with my third baby and I got like absolutely just struck down by this awful craving for blood. And there is a real thing, I mean, like it's a real thing craving blood, let me tell you. Um, Because it's blood, blood everywhere, you know. (laughs) Um, But there is a thing, you know, in in pregnancy called PICA, where pregnant women crave things that aren't food, like dirt or soap or coal. And so I read up on PICA and, you know, blood didn't seem to be very commonly craved. But I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't too concerned with that. I immediately started looking for a phlebotomist, <laughs> um, and I. So I suppose when I was writing um, that work and talking a lot with um, Lisa, who is Sarah's co-tramp, um, mm-hmm. and my editor on the book, um, we did talk a lot about uh, Dracula and um, Bram Stoker and um, also hungry words. The um, the work uh, it was a collection of writing about uh, famine texts okay. and there is a brilliant piece in it from god I should have checked Goss? Sarah Goss? No Moss. Katie Goss? No. <laughs> There's Sarah Moss the writer. Sarah? No, it's not Sarah Moss. Okay. Oh, it'll come yeah. back to me anyway. In we'll fact, check it later. She wrote a wonderful piece all about how kind of Dracula is this kind of, um, you know, takes place against a kind of a famine backdrop Mm. and the kind of sickened land Mm. of, of Dracula, you know, and how London is kind of sickened after Dracula goes there in the book and things like that. Anyway, it was all very inspiring to me as I was working through this issue about this little taste I'd gotten fixated on. And I mean, in the end of craving, I didn't drink blood. But I had a little taste, um, and it wasn't very satisfying. And then I went really then all out, um, and I don't know. You're looking at me like yeah, I know no, how to no, <laughs> <laughs> It was hard to know how to end an essay about craving blood because I suppose it was just this thing of like an impossible appetite. So I guess where I'm going with this is I'm very sympathetic to Dracula. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think
1: Dracula's a here. I think Bram Stoker is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm.
0: it's
3: so interesting to hear both of you talking about this i think one of the things that i'm fascinated with in terms of the gothic is the different ways that elements of of, of the gothic start to filter down and reach writers or artists through different avenues and um When I think of Stoker's Dracula, I think of adaptations of it, you know, and and particularly Francis Ford Coppola's, or Coppola, Coppola, um, his adaptation, which came out when I was a teenager and is so OTT, ridiculously so. I absolutely loved it from the first second I saw it. And actually, funnily enough, since I read Sophie's book, that chapter that she's describing with the blood reminds me so much of the first scene in Cola's Dracula, where he stabs across. This is before he becomes a vampire in this adaptation. He stabs across, and all this blood comes gushing out and like almost fills up the whole room like a bath of blood. And now, when I think of that scene, I could just see like Sophie White appearing in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> just <with> a cup. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's funny the ways in which elements like that can make themselves felt well through different films and different adaptations. Like that was something that meant a lot to me. And and when I was writing A Ghost in the Throat, every now and then I would think of it when I was considering the image in the poem by Eileen Dovny Connell, where she finds her husband's body, falls to her knees, scoops up handfuls of his blood and drinks it. I always thought of that adaptation. I always thought of that extremely extravagant OTT moment at the beginning of that film of Dracula um, and how powerful it is and how much it spoke to me. So yeah, there's definitely parallels there in my own work as well.
0: Um, And I noticed something you said, Dearen, that was about how the Gothic um, infects, if it were, um, sorry for the pun, everyone, but sort of infects all these different cultural works. So even if something I mean, for me, in my studies, whenever I read something, I can find the gothic in it. I just see it. It's there. Even if it is a realist text, you can still find it there. And that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about the three of you is that you've all written in different genres, um, and with the exception of Sarah's work, which is science fiction or speculative fiction, they aren't overtly supernatural stories, but all of you are drawing on the supernatural in some form, uh, specifically through the metaphors of the ghost, of the vampire, uh, and the banshee. And so I was wondering if the supernatural is something you consciously draw on.
2: And, yeah, sure, Um. (laughs) Olga. Uh, Consciously, uh, well, I'm very, I think, uh, very superstitious. Um, I think the way that the supernatural kind of um, comes into my last book, Corpsing, so much is kind of connected to mental illness and how, and I think those two things, like kind of supernatural events and mental illness have like had this like really uh, kind of wedded history where, you know, kind of there's almost always been a sort of a question of are these events taking place or is there an unreliable narrator and I suppose in my book I always felt the the narrator is very unreliable it's me and I'm mentally ill and these events are also unreliable (laughs) because they are and it's it's kind of spooky that way and like some of the things I suppose for me in how I've kind of mm, like try to reason out my kind of mm, obsessions of the mind that might be more kind of uh, mentally ill than supernatural would be kind of uh, I suppose like like trying to rationalise away some of these kind of demented kind of tangents that my mind can go off on like it is a part in the book where I describe how I've become really convinced that I'm possessed by a demon and that this is what's wrong with me and that there's like I suppose this like absurdity to that of like trying to kind of tell somebody in like your normal life in like 2020 that you think you're possessed by a demon it's just like (laughs) It's like Francis Ford Coppola's opening scenes of Dracula. It's like too much for brunch. (laughs) Um, But I think that that is it. I think when a lot of my kind of mental illness and bad episodes of like, I would have had kind of hallucinations or kind of manic episodes and things like that. Like, I suppose, like, because I have this kind of canon of supernatural film and books and it definitely is like, It's like mind petrol (laughs) for being like, no, maybe I'm not bipolar, but possessed by a demon, you know? And so I think that's where Supernatural comes into my um, work a lot. And also, I think sometimes some of the most kind of, I suppose, things that are received as like the normal average life events to me seem completely batshit, like um, childbirth. And I always remember people being like, are you going to have a natural birth? And I always was like, what a weird phrase. Yeah. Like, I'd love to come back and be like, no, I'm going to have a supernatural birth. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I do think it's really bad that we go around acting like it's totally normal to grow people inside people and then have them squish out a way too small hole. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that would be me and yeah. Supernatural.
1: Yeah. I, I, yeah, I relate to so much of what you're saying. I mean, it seems that the film between, I don't want to say this world and the next. I don't really believe in the supernatural. I don't really believe that there are parallel universes out there, but just the, I guess maybe I'm just more aware of the limits of our knowledge, um, which are, and our knowledge is so puny, especially when put against the kind of shit that happens to us. (laughs) Like whether you're just um, badly injured or you have a child and you're just not yourself afterwards for a while, um, such random shit happens and you don't know how to explain it. I I'm not I'm not superstitious I am maybe a little stitious um, <laughs> my brother was getting married um, a few years ago and I'm not really one who goes looking for omens or anything but outside the family house the morning of his wedding there was a crane which had got caught up in fishing wire and had caught itself in one of the trees and was just hanging there this huge creature dead and my brother's marriage didn't last a year and I just think there's some kind of connection there you know and like I knew it looking at it I was like mm, nope. and I'm, again I'm not superstitious but sometimes you just you look at something and you know something about the future even though there's no obvious connection between them and I think that's really freaky and and true
3: yeah I'm uh like what Sarah was saying I'm not superstitious. I am superstitious very much so so like I'd be kind of quite unapologetically uh into that side of things um I actually feel very close culturally the people who came before us through engaging with our folklore and the understandings of the supernatural that people in this country would have had before the advent of electric lights say you know when the dark is coming the dark is coming all you've got against it is a candle what kind of a story are you going to tell and I love that we still have access to so many to so much of that literary tradition and that there's kind of that there's a sense of closeness that can still be activated to those people and to those stories through the archives. Um, but, you know, I I feel like there's more that we can't understand about life than that we can understand. That's my own personal understanding, if <laughs> I can say that. Um, and I think that anything to do with my own writing comes from some kind of greater sense of mystery and an elsewhere and that's something that I have just come to accept that sense of that it is it does feel mysterious to me I think everyone is really different in this way and in their understandings of this element of life you know for a lot of people it only comes up of this you like a death of someone close to them say or a great life event like that or if they were brushed with death themselves but it's something I've had very close to all my life since I was a child and it's just part of things for me I don't kind of think about it that much but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't consciously aware of the supernatural in my work because yes I am and I'm aware of it in every part of
0: my life so uh, I was wondering if why you think that we are seeing an increase in books by women that engage in these themes, so engage in the occult and speculative writing and the supernatural, if you think that there is something about women's experience in particular that lends itself to these forms.
1: I wonder about that. Um, I don't really like to draw distinctions between male personalities and mm-hmm. female personalities generically because I'm not really sure that they exist. But perhaps women have been trained over the centuries to hold a more empathetic nature perhaps more attuned to what is going on around us because we're more frequently in danger um and perhaps because of that we're more we become more attuned to other things too um yeah Sophie what do you think
2: I feel like women are really like versed in gore from just I don't know I was 11 when I age are you?
0: <laughs> Um you know because
2: like because obviously we menstruate and we are just already kind of like blood is like just this kind of I think housekeeping almost for women. Mm. Um, and I love that kind of kind of weird collision I guess of of those ideas that you know we kind of uh, you know are are just tidying away the unpleasantness for other people mm. so that nobody's made uncomfortable or you know um, and yes and then i think you know obviously there's no gore greater than childhood and um, it's like cannibal holocaust <laughs> in Hollow street every day <laughs> and um, you know i find that i think there's real stoicism in women because we're very accustomed to that kind of thing i think that like as well like the whole kind of tradition of like you know like keening women and like women washing the dead and women doing all that stuff I think that's Mm. something that was like unpleasant jobs they put on women maybe and then it became mysterious jobs that the women do and then people started getting nervous what are they doing and then so then they just started dunking us upside down in the water to see if we floated (laughs) and if we floated we were devils, and if we drowned, well, we went to heaven because we were good women, even though they drowned us. I've been researching witch trials today, <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> but I was researching some Irish witches today, and um, I was like, had such a great time reading about the persecution of these women who just their main crime was just um, being kind of yeah, slightly. Well, just having a lot of husbands actually seemed to be a big one. This is Bram
1: Stoker's issue as well. He was not keen on women behaving in any way provocatively. He was purity or the stake. That's
2: it. (laughs) Yes, yes. And um, so it's it's interesting because I was doing a piece of round um, kind of uh, olden day witch trials. And then kind of like I wanted to kind of draw in some like contemporary witches. So I had like decided Sinead O'Connor was one of our great oh, contemporary witches okay. yeah. and, and, and how that thing now we have in the culture really, there's a bit of a moment where women are getting to rewrite um, how they were written by kind of media yeah. and the culture in the kind of 90s and 2000s and, and obviously long before. Um, but yeah, I kind of think that that's, I think, the trajectory somewhat of why women are so connected into these things and to what you said about the empathy, the kind of learned empathy, like the kind of almost need that we need to be empathetic to manage Certain how we move through the world yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So. I think Duren might be a witch also. Yes. <laughs> uh,
3: I don't have the skills for that. Part <laughs> 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 the time. <laughs> um, um, I, 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 funnily enough like I think I agree with uh, Sarah's first point that it's it's I'd be kind of reluctant to go down the line of wondering whether a particular gen- gender is more drawn to kind of certain genres or feelings in their work than others Um I mean it's not something I've noticed women writing more about these kind of elements than others
0: either so I don't really know
2: sorry <laughs>
0: another question this one might be particularly good for you Sophie I was wondering why you think in general we're seeing an increased interest in things like true crime ghost stories murder mysteries um, just basically anything that's kind of creepy or deals with the macabre and I was wondering if you all enjoy any of these genres, partake in them. And Sophie, I know that in your podcast, The Creep Dive, you've created a bit of a community of people who are fascinated by things like the paranormal, can I say that? (laughs) paranormal, the weird, and the uncanny. And do you think there's a reason why, um, you know, again, I think we have always been fascinated with these things, but right now, it seemed to really have a cultural moment. Do you think it speaks to the present moment in any sort of way? like, I don't
2: know. Like, I kind of think maybe it's similar to your point about like, are we just now getting the women writers that we would have mm. been getting all along had not been for well, you know, all that old mess of the patriarchy? <laughs> Thank God that's over. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if it's like people now just have like way more access as well yeah. to those stories because I remember like this interest isn't new for me. It's certainly not new for anyone I know really so like I have co-hosted a podcast called the creep dive and we like our tagline is we go deeper than any normal person has time for and it basically came <laughs> about because in researching for novels and things I used to do a lot of procrastinating and reading of like just wild weird stories and I'd send them over to my friend and she'd send them back and then one day I was like oh, I gotta parlay this into some kind of work <laughs> let's make a podcast so I can justify all this And, you know, it just was stuff that we had always been really interested in, but I remember kind of, do you remember, like, kind of in the 90s, you'd kind of go to someone's house who had cable, and you could see, like, the odd time you get a glimpse of, like, forensic files or something, and, like, I'd be, like,
0: to the TV, (laughs) like, oh, my God, it's a bad
2: reenactment. (gasps) Yes, what's happening? And, like, then when the internet came about, me and my best friend just immediately started using it for Rotten.com which is a terrible place I don't support it don't support it but it's a bad bad hole on the internet and it raised us Um, and it was just I think that there suddenly was like just this central place where you could put all these stories that were so troubling and yeah like the um I suppose hitting of the mainstream with like, I feel like they've kind of gentrified true crime now <laughs> and they've made us all feel less weird and bad for liking it because it's got like higher production values and stuff. But um, I don't know, like I've heard people, and I think I've even kind of made this point myself that like women maybe are very particularly interested in this genre because it's probably like depressingly enough gonna pass the best test. test. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which everyone knows is that test that this cartoonist called Alice Bechtel came up with to decide if like a film was like not totally sexist and it was like if there was two female characters and they spoke to each other and not about a man and like I can't remember there was like a few other rules but like I remember being like God true crime's probably great on the Bechdel test <laughs> and that's the other thing like that I suppose true crime was like this sad opportunity for women to see women's stories
1: which it's is a nice grim yeah.
2: assessment,
0: but...
1: But isn't it nice to see it writ large? Or isn't it nice to see it being universally acknowledged? And by it, I mean, you know, what happens to women usually in their homes, sometimes in the woods, sometimes out running or whatever. Like, we know that yeah. one woman a week in the UK, for example, gets murdered by a partner. Like, that's a lot of women. That's a lot of women. We all watch the news here. We see how women go missing. Um, yeah. It's just... I think it's only recently that these stories are becoming more obvious to the general populace. I feel like really recently these were just kind of shoved under the carpet. And, and you know, it was a domestic matter. Nobody needed to know. But we, we knew it was happening. And it's nice to... Nice is the wrong word. It's somewhat satisfying in a dark way to uh, to have that knowledge... Acknowledged by the populace at large, I guess.
2: Totally, and then also like the thing is, I think like news outlets like it's a very kind of heavily mediated kind of mm. way of getting yeah. information and stuff. Yeah. And I think the biggest change is, of course, social media. But like here now is a, an engaged audience who, that was able to kind of demand the topics that they want to see covered and things like that. I guess you mm. know there's an element of that, and then obviously there's like all the kind of grassroots sleuthing and stuff. But yeah, yeah, I do think it's kind of researching our own survival in a way, like yeah, maybe. But so also, like, it, it feels cool. like being scared <laughs> is like I find really enjoyable, and it moves us, like you know. So I think that yeah. is kind of like a kind of almost dopamine mm-hmm. release, sort of with that kind of those kind of stories, yeah. you know. Right. Like even when Darrin said, like you know, all you have against the dark is the candlelight, I was like, oh, tell me more.
3: What do you think, Jane? Oh gosh, I don't know. I do think that there's an element of, of the folkloric in how we embrace these horrifying and really sad stories that we encounter in the news and retell them to each other and seek out facts from them and um, and that it is almost like an amulet, that it is almost like you know, like you were saying, Sophie, like protecting ourselves by rehearsing the stories in some way that there's an element of the superstitious about it. Um, and 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 it's just awful, isn't it? It's awful that we're in that position, uh, that it's a behavior that's, I think, common to pretty much all of us. I've yet to encounter a woman who doesn't engage in that, in that kind of thinking and that kind of speech anyway. You know, it seems to be something that we all share. Uh, particularly when there's something in the news it's just the horror of it the horror
0: is very hard to look away from yeah yeah no absolutely um a question I have that I think it, it relates to all of your work but particularly I wanted to ask you about it Sarah is about houses so in the last ones left alive there's some uh moments where in this world that's been sort of decimated by some sort of Virus or zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. When people go into houses, it's all, they're always seen as sort of haunted by the past, haunted by the remnants. And this is something that has played a role in gothic and supernatural fiction. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if um, how does your work write or rewrite the domestic sphere, and if you see it as a haunted space?
1: You know, I think I was trying more to write away from the Gothic when I was writing Last One's <laughs> Left Alive. Because I think if you think of the elements of Gothic, you've got, okay, burdened male protagonist, yeah. um, very moody country landscape. And mm-hmm. though I have a lot of landscape issues, they're, they're sort of a more reference to Irish artists rather than kind of an, any kind of Irish Gothic history. Um, but then you do have the kind of, you know, the usual large house which um is occupied and which feels um almost like a personality in and of itself and I was trying to write away from most of that in that the um the real home for my main character Orpin is like wherever her mother is essentially and wherever her guardian is and so her home kind of follows her wherever she goes (coughs) they live in a kind of ghost estate um off the coast of Ireland that is only kind of pretty sparingly described, like the house is a pretty normal house. Um, It's certainly not particularly large to her, it doesn't feel haunted. Um, But yeah, I I mean, I really take your point that Mm. the island itself and the houses that she goes into and the schools Mm. and any buildings, they're all just so full of um, lives that were cut quite abruptly short. Um, And it's very difficult for, she's sort of trying to piece together the past, And these are the clues that she has to work with. So she's sort of preoccupied um, by these ghosts. So yeah, it's sort of a, tr- a conundrum, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I, and I can see what you mean, because I guess I was actually thinking about when, like the ghost estate she goes to, but you're absolutely right that for her, there's what her, her mothers are essentially able to do for her is create a home for her amidst yeah. this just decimated sort of empty ghost like landscape. Yeah.
1: And on the one hand I'm trying to sort of escape <coughs> the distinctly domestic writing of, you know, what people are eating and what they're wearing mm. and um, how particular you know, is how the furniture of a life is organised and yet I cannot stop thinking about it. Um, one of the um, <laughs> authors that we republished is called Dorothy McArdle. She's an Irish um, sci-fi writer. She's amazing um, and she is very uniquely absorbed in the domestic and I find that so satisfying. She's talking about haircuts. She's talking about exactly what people are wearing and how changes of dress can affect their mood and their feeling of power. Um, she's talking about what people are eating and how delicious it is and how um, how to manage guests in a house. And I, I, I find it so absorbing. Um, and I think that just sort of affected me in ways that I didn't really know at the
0: time. That's great. Uh, what about you, Diren? You have quite a few houses <coughs> in A Ghost in the Throat as well. Do you do you see writing The Domestic as a haunted space? When you write The Domestic, do you see that you're engaging in kind of a Gothic tradition or a haunted tradition in any sort of way? I... I, I, I what i find when i come to the blank page is that i'm not engaging with any
3: tradition at a conscious level i'm um i'm engaging with the page and with my one reader that's always how i feel i feel like there's one reader and and that's how it works for me it's just me and the page and there's one reader and and that's it and um it oftentimes it's only when i have a little distance that i start to think about. Things like how I'm engaging with the wider literary tradition. But then I don't know. I don't know if Sophie and Sarah feel this, but like sometimes maybe every writer does. There's a sense of you create a work of literature that you have really done your best with in that often quite lonely experience of sitting down on your own and and wrenching this book out of yourself. And uh, once other readers come to it, they can very clearly see. Oh, you know, it's it's this genre, it's that genre, and you're kind of going like, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you know that you're almost quite. You have such a distance yourself as the author from how other people see it that it's difficult to place it in terms of tradition, Katie. That's been my experience anyway, and that's all I can speak to. But in terms of the domestic, I'm not sure whether I would place my work within consciously within the gothic tradition but i do know that uh in a quite a haphazard way it does engage with a lot of the elements and that there is a lot of crossover there so yeah i write a lot about the domestic i write a lot about the ways in which domestic spaces can feel haunted even after the people who dwell there have left that there's some remnant of ourselves that's left after us in domestic spaces and i'm really interested in that i love I love to think about that. I really really do. And that Gaston Bachelard line about all corners are haunted. You know, I love that. I love hallways and corners and strange little spots and and watching like the shape of light that a window will cast in a hallway and how it moves during the day and thinking about the other people who've inhabited that house and noticed that same movement of light during a day the same movement of moonlight at night through a window Um, and so almost can't help myself engaging in that kind of tone of writing that kind of tone of thought Um, and I don't feel like I'm constantly carrying a tradition with me to the page and yet sometimes I end up doing it nonetheless in a kind of weird oblivious way that I don't really know what I'm what I'm doing so (laughs) yeah. <laughs> Great. I always feel like I'm coming to the page and I'm writing something
1: totally fresh and really original and then everyone's just like, <laughs> like well done No.
2: One. <laughs> um, oh yeah I was uh, absorbed there um, uh, let me see houses and things um, funnily enough uh, like Sarah actually I love reading about uh, food and what people are eating in books and things like that and my first book was like a kind of memoir cookbook and um, I worked as a chef in my 20s and the kind of memoir aspect of that book it was called recipes for nervous breakdown and it was about a nervous breakdown I had when I was 22 and um, but it was also about um, my dad being diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was about 20 mm-hmm. and um, like it was kind of it referenced it and it was definitely I think now looking back at that book I'm like oh it was actually kind of the backbone of that book was this trajectory of his illness and um, mm-hmm. but I actually didn't really speak about it except in one essay of the book and um, where I wrote about the kind of <coughs> I suppose peak of his illness mm-hmm. which was him attacking my mum in our family home um, and now when I think about um, the kind of haunted house thing, like it's a very specific kind of, uh, I don't know, haunting of one particular house, my family house. Mm -hmm. And when I think about that book and when I think about Corpsing, which also has house references and in Corpsing, my body is that house and quite, uh, you know, what is it, very directly represented on the cover (laughs) beautifully. (laughs) So, yeah, when I think about that house, I think about the kind of events that happened in my parents' house that are detailed in Recipes for a Nervous Breakdown. um, And they always feel to me like they're happening all at the same time, um, all in different parts of the house at the same time. It is all happening, different time is all running at the same. And it's kind of a weird thing to try and picture, but that story of the night that he attacked my mother um, was a very particular story kind of comes up again in corpsing a bit he was um kind of experiencing psychosis Mm -hmm. and again you see i think psychosis is the haunted house Mm -hmm. you know it's your like our head is our home and our head uh, being mangled in any way by illness is is then a very hostile place like a haunted house and um yeah like my mum was fine and safe thank god like she was actually minding my baby that night and um, she managed to get her and the baby out of the house and lock the door and lock him in and again like now when I think about all these things it's extremely I don't know like it just calls up all of the things the shining and you know the haunted house and the I don't know last child and and Frankenstein's monster and all of this kind of stuff you know. And then like, obviously, because it's a real story, there's loads of these really random, hilarious and absurd elements too. Like we got home and um, a friend had like, kind of gussied up some tranquilizers that they'd obviously gotten in America. <laughs> you know, when people go to America, and like, you suddenly get a list from loads of people. You know, like, I want melatonin, and i like, want <laughs> this sleeping pill they sell I'm over the counter job. over there. <laughs> so this person had been like, I have some American drugs. Hang on, <laughs> and so they had to sedate my dad because he was really obviously like out of his mind. And um, then it was very just strange. But we had to call my husband and get my husband to come over to the house. So all of this was unfolding in this house that had been our family home. And then, like I said, the absurd and then the kind of banal all collide, and I was like, um, "We have to. Somebody has to stay here in the house with him, because oh, it's no way it's sounding not crazy. But like, I suppose my family made me, so you'll you'll know. You won't be that surprised. My dad used to. My parents used to sleep with a knife under the bed, basically in case there was an intruder. But now, on this particular night, that became a real issue." <laughs> So me and my mum were like, we'll go over to your house. And they said to my husband, you'll stay here. <laughs> and then we left. And we're like, good luck with that, bye. <laughs> and then obviously we had to do the kind of bureaucratic side of, of an event like that the next day. But in my mind, it was all in this, in this house. And obviously all of our traumas are in our house, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is a weird kind of very unifying kind of part of life, isn't it?
0: No, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking at the time and we have time for one more question and then I'm going to take questions from the audience uh, who are in person as well as online. And Dearen, this question I think is particularly for you and it reverberates with your refrain, this is a female text which you repeat throughout your recovery of the life and poetry of Eileen Dove and I wanted to ask, is the female a ghost within history? Another way to think about it is how, how do you write matrilineal histories or women's histories? Do you think you struggle with it in a sense?
3: I think that when we turn towards history, sometimes we can find a mirror there. And it's very clear to certain people when they're attending towards the ways in which histories have been written, the ways in which their own experiences have been occluded or erased or just ignored. And I think oftentimes for women, when we, when we read or when we engage with the histories of Ireland and the way it's been written traditionally, it's very clear to us that we aren't there and the ways in which we are there don't feel familiar to us in our own existences. And I think for people like myself who are drawn towards attempting to write new histories, it's inevitable that we attempt to voice the stories of women that we encountered there whose stories haven't been told, whether or not they could be considered ghosts, I suppose is a different matter or whether history like i mean history is history is a ghost itself, you know, but um, yeah, I think there's an inevitability to that and and that sense of retelling and reassembling like talk about Frankenstein you know of 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 going into history and reaching your hands into it and and choosing different elements of it that feel significant to stitch together into a new whole and and trying to make it come to life um i think that that's probably something that every generation attempts to do and every every generation will grapple with a different element of that and I just think it's a pity that women still in 2021 are still trying to grapple with the fact that there are so much of women's lives that haven't been told um and that's a shame and it's a shame that we're doing the reparative work ourselves oftentimes too it's funny I think
1: in some ways, horror shows up the um, so much of the fears and personality of the author. Like I think we all know what Bram Stoker is afraid of, and that is sexy yeah. women, <laughs> which fair. Um, and, and I we think would have stood a chance in here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think you know the the histories that we have just go to show so much of the personality and concerns of the people who write them. Um, uh, which are, I, I mean, there's no such thing as um, an impartial historian, I think, no matter how hard you try to be one, you can only tell things from your own particular slant. Mm-hmm.
2: <coughs> yeah, I feel like it's kind of the only the tip of the erasure iceberg, really, yeah. in terms of looking back on our, our history from where we are right mm-hmm. now and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I do think it's interesting, like what... Um, and described there about kind of reaching in and finding that thing you know like the mirror or the thing that makes sense to you and I do think it's very striking for writers and artists that first one that you um, look at and it looks back at you you know that kind of way like yeah. I have a really random one Nula O'Fuelon I don't know if she'd like being called a ghost here now <laughs> but Nula O'Fuelon's book Are You Somebody was one for me that I think I read it when I was pretty young like about 14 and I remember being really like oh like I could exist this way do you know that kind of way and I think that's kind of something everyone has uh, like man woman days and gays everyone has Mm -hmm. that kind of mirror
0: moment it's a beautiful way to put it Jiren. And I think it's particularly apt that you mentioned Nula of because we still have the Nula exhibition on the third floor, actually. Ah, so I just did that to give you an see, easy there plug. you go, there you like, go. No, we need a segue. So, <laughs> so Nula's haunting the third she's floor. She's haunting the third <laughs> floor, so yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you all for your wonderful answers to those questions. Uh, is there anyone in the room who would like to ask a question? Or I know I also have an iPad. So if anybody, somewhere I have an iPad. Here we go. So um, if anybody online wants to ask a question as well. Anyone? Oh, Gerardine, yes. Thank you, all three. Unfortunately, I'm afraid I'm gonna paraphrase it and not say it as eloquently as you did, Gerardine. But for the people online, the question is about whether prose or fiction has the possibility to heal these erasures that we're talking about in history, sort of imaginatively and creatively. Can I answer that one to begin with? Is that okay?
3: Yeah. Uh, I think I feel really passionately about this because I was very fortunate as a child that uh, my parents often brought me to the library and I was really drawn to um these amazing tellings I suppose what you call historical fiction you know that like just that really brought history to life for me and and that brought children to life within history for me and that was a large part of my beginnings as just as a person of being fascinated with history and and the lives that have been lived before us and and the different forces of history. So I really feel like fiction and particularly fiction for children, but fiction for adults as well is so important because it drives us, doesn't it? it? It drives us. It drives, it makes our hearts beat faster when you're reading a really good book that suddenly conjures history with a sense of immediacy and empathy. There's nothing like that. I'm I'm someone who loves history, so I read history in different genres, and and I read nonfiction and fiction and all kinds in terms of history. Anything, anything on Netflix, I just watch like period pieces. I just love anything to do with history, and I feel like that's something that art and literature has to offer us. That's just so deeply engaging the fact that we can relate to and empathize with other people's lives and that we can observe through these prisms the ways in which different forces societally culturally historically the ways in which they grappled with them and the ways in which they try to live despite them and alongside them. And yeah, I absolutely think that that's one of the most important roles that good literature can play for us is allowing us the keys to unlock history. I read a book
2: um, called What She Ate by a writer called Laura Shapiro. Um, and she's a food historian and she took six women. And um, Eleanor Roosevelt was one of them. Eva Braun was one. Um, Oh God, I feel bad. Dorothy Wordsworth was one. I loved her story. But basically Shapiro took these six women and she kind of like recreated them through their food and everything she knew about the food they ate. And um, it's such a great uh, read, just genuinely like to come at a kind of female history through um, food, which is a charged kind of area for women, Mm -hmm. undeniably. And um, it's absolutely brilliant book. I really recommend it. And it's... Great to hear what a baller Dorothy Wordsworth was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Are there any other questions from the audience? I have one from online, this one's from Mary. It says, I have a question for all the panelists. Why do you think so few Irish women authors have written traditionally supernatural stories featuring vampires and witches and werewolves and the like, and do you see this changing? So using, I guess, um, specifically these these supernatural figures in fiction. I guess I've
2: read quite a few that do. So, Mm. um, but I wouldn't. I have kind of a fairly limited knowledge of of everyone who's writing in like every genre. But like, I love Deirdre Sullivan and. Um, Sarah uh, Griffin uh, who both have written like with really like proper yeah. mm-hmm. kind of witchy mm-hmm. um, witchcraft yeah. <laughs> and really god like they have they're both such like I don't know they just create these like lush kind of worlds don't yeah. they and I love their characters and um, what, what do you think? yeah there's, uh, and there's this
1: um, I there's this writer called RB Kelly uh, she's from Northern Ireland and she wrote um, a science fiction book called Edge of Heaven that came out about three or four years ago which is so good like it's just one of the better sci-fi books I've read and I love reading sci-fi. I do not think there are fewer women than men for example writing, Sci fi and fantasy and speculative fiction in Ireland. Um, I don't think there's a huge amount of us writing in those genres, um, but um, I think, uh, like at present day, and in fact, historically, actually, you know, women have been as interested in these subjects as men, um, although their work is less likely to survive. we have a book coming out, <laughs> um, which is um, called It Rose Up and it's coming out next month. Um it's edited by um, Jack Fennell and it's about um, Irish fan lost sort of Irish fantasy um, short stories. And they're sort of Jack's an amazing um, historian and like he really like he does amazing research on who is writing what when and he's amazing on just monsters Irish science fiction and fantasy and he's just dug out a lot of women writers who are writing these crazy stories um and we really enjoy republishing that work um in this series um so check that out 16 euros coming at you (laughs) it's <laughs> christmas guys yeah.
3: um. magnificent I can't, I can't wait to read that and i just love that Trampers still offering us these extraordinary books you know i can really itching to read that one and what came to mind there for me with that question is this um a wonderful poem by one of my favorite poets who often writes in the irish language albany garvey called conryacht and um it kind of grapples with the sense of transformation um, and there's an element of werewolfishness, if I can say that about it. So I would recommend that everyone go and look up Albany e. Garvey and you can engage with that through the
0: Irish language and in translation. She's a great poet. Well, I think this has been a fantastic conversation and I want to thank the three of you for being here and for such a fascinating and wonderful discussion, um, please, everyone, if you have not read these books, I hope that this has given you a taste of what they're about, and I really recommend you read them all. Um, and well, I think you. that's it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. <laughs> <Thanks. Yeah. laughs> and that brings this episode of the Dublin Gothic podcast to a close. This podcast was produced by Ian Dumphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly with Ian Dumphy on sound. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.